This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. interviews world-renowned consciousness teacher and healer, Richard Moss. In this episode, Richard talks about conscious relationships, the power of presence, and more. Presence is associated with feelings of aliveness, connection, creativity, satisfaction, and flow. It is presence that frequently is the difference that makes the difference in your ability to enjoy life, heal emotional wounds, experience intimacy, and support the growth and transformation of others. In his inspiring work, he presents powerful principles, tools, and practices for transforming self-limiting patterns of thought and behaviors, and for staying in the present, even in the midst of very difficult feelings. Drawing from individual counseling sessions and utilizing practical exercises, Dr. Moss demonstrates how awareness and presence can be applied to support change in yourself and others, thereby creating a solid bridge between knowing and doing. Inside Out Healing will help you become more available and fully connected with yourself and others, build a solid foundation for healing in all areas of your life, be better able to handle difficult situations with more elegance and ease, improve both personal and professional relationships, expand your capacity for genuine empathy and compassion, and experience more richness, gratitude, and fulfillment in your life and relationships. Are you ready for a shift of consciousness that liberates your mind and heart? Richard is an internationally respected leader in the field of inner transformation, subtle body-mind dynamics, and living a path of conscious relationships. In 1977, Richard was a practicing medical doctor when he experienced a spontaneous spiritual illumination that awakened him to the multidimensional nature of human consciousness. This realization profoundly transformed his understanding of the roots of emotional suffering and inspired him to explore the almost limitless human potential for growth and healing. Impelled by this opening, he released the practice of medicine to devote his life to mentoring individuals and couples whose lives have brought them to the point where they hunger to explore the mystery of their being. Whether called to his work by their soul's yearning to awaken and grow, or impelled by a health, career, or relationship crisis, his comprehensive and evolutionary approach to healing and forging loving relationships has transformed the lives of tens of thousands of people. 
he is particularly renowned for the innovative, experiential nature of his workshops and longer retreats that offer individuals direct experience of life-changing states of consciousness and provide them with very effective models and practices for ongoing personal growth. He guides seminars and retreats in North and South America, Europe, and Australia, and is available for private mentoring for individuals at his home in Colorado. He has published seven seminal books on his visionary approach to human evolution, which have been translated into six languages. Here is the interview with Richard Moss. In your own words, who is Richard Moss? Oh my goodness, what a great surprise question. <laughs> I'm a person who is ceaselessly learning. And what I'm most interested in learning is the path of the heart, what I will call or could call a heart mind. A good friend of mine coined that expression. Um, I've been trained in medicine, left that behind oh, now 40, 45 years ago. And, but I still love science. Uh, love the the way science looks at things, but I'm very deeply involved in um, spirituality, independent of religion. I respect religion, and um, but spirituality is the heart of what religion is about. And so I've been a, a seeker of to understand the nature of self, the nature of consciousness as we experience it, and most of all to um, follow the the pole star of love to to understand what it really means to love to love love with others with another um, and I've taught all over the world and you, you'll get to that when you have the bio I, I just see myself as a person who can learn and is continuously learning and is always a beginner mm. how wonderful everything that you just said <laughs> Um, so before we talk about love and being in love and conscious relationships, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off record. <laughs> the first warm-up question is, what is life to you, Richard? Life is wonderment. Life is an opportunity as a human being to understand life. I mean, to, to try to understand life, to to live in awe and amazement at the nature of life. We human beings, or that aspect of nature, is, I think Thomas Berry was an interesting man who said, we human beings are that aspect of nature becoming conscious of itself. So I, I see life has produced human beings, and human beings are, the, in my framework, the first creatures not only becoming conscious of nature itself and of our own nature, but also capable of falling in love and actively loving life and loving the, the wonderment and mystery and profound, unspeakable depths and complexity of life. Mm, yes. So life is, life is a path. Life is something to live. Life is something to celebrate. Life is, life is something to learn in and learn about continuously. What do you think is the opposite of life? Ignorance. I think when a person doesn't examine their own life, when they have been inculcated by family of origin dynamics, history, culture, education, but they can't 
they haven't been educated deeply enough to examine themselves. But that is that they end up being people that are prisoners of their own beliefs. And when you are the prisoner of your own beliefs, you are essentially unable to truly understand life. Wow. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Well, I would say freedom and awakening, enlightenment are all the same thing. You you reach a point where you choose why you're here. In the old days, people navigated by the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere and by the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. So the notion of the Pole Star, the, that which you navigate by, and in my way of saying it, the consecration, the deepest dedication of a life. Freedom comes when you choose what is your deepest dedication and what you are going to guide your life by and govern your life by. Yeah, choices, right? Mm -hmm. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need and what is your vision for a new reality? I pray every day, mm -hmm. just by yeah. my practice every morning. I, I sing in the morning, I extemporaneously make up my own poems, sometimes yeah. my own melodies and lyrics. But the whole process is to just come deeper and deeper into my heart and being that I'm a living prayer for human beings to awaken to the opportunity that life is. Deeper consciousness. Our, the world's greatest need is to realize that the principle of fear, if you will, the god of fear, was important for our survival, but that forever love was the deeper purpose of life. And you can say that God, the act of creation, if you believe in God being the creator, was an act of love, and that human beings are here to understand the, the fundamental love. And so what we need is love, and what we need is the consciousness that allows us to see what closes our hearts which blocks the flow of love in us, in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, across society. Wherever love stops, then that's where suffering begins. Wherever the suffering created by the mind, we, we need deepening consciousness and we need to consecrate that growth of consciousness to love. And speaking of love, are there different kinds of love or just one love? Oh, no. There, you could say there is one love, but that's too abstract. Right. For most people, what they understand love to be is the love that brings a man and a woman together or any two people together, and in particular that causes them to want to have children and have a family. And love at that level can be very, very beautiful, but it tends the majority of time to be transactional. That is, I love you because I see you in a certain way that... I find to be attractive and important and essential. Uh, you love me because you see me that way. And I ensure your love of me by doing the things that I believe I would want you to do for me. And I will love you as long as you do those things. And you will love me as long as I do those things. But the moment, the moment I outgrow or I, I start to see your shadow and the parts of you I don't know, and the moment you're not behaving and treating me the way I think you should, then my love is gone. And hate can start and miserable, ugly, angry divorces start. And you see that that kind of love is superficial, really that there's a deeper love which starts when we decide that love itself is what we're here to love. Mm -hmm. And so for me, 
there is the love of love itself. And what does it mean to love love in a marriage, in a family, and throughout life? And that's the path that I'm on. So how would you define love, Richard, that deeper love? Well, when it, I'm working on a new book, a little book on love and fear, and, and, and I don't try to define love. You don't go to a university and get a degree in anything that is a virtue or infinite. You can't get a degree in love because you can't be tested for it. You can't get a degree in trust or compassion or forgiveness or humility or integrity because those are attributes that you have to choose and foster in yourself and have and 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 model for others so that they can foster it in themselves and so love then we all know what it is it's it's a sensation that gives us a sense of belonging it's a sensation that gives us a sense of gratitude and wonderment it's it's a sensation that suddenly disperses dispels all fear for a while it's a sensation of knowing the rightness of things and the rightness of oneself in things in that moment and you may only get a taste of that kind of love a very few times in your life but if you never experience it more than once once is enough because from that point on your life needs to become devoted to whatever it takes to bring more love into the world i have heard before that fear is the opposite of love is that something that um, you would say as well no, I would say fear is the ally of love. What's more important, facing fear in the marriage so that integrity and honesty and openness is possible or keeping the relationship safe by hiding things and being dishonest and secretive? If you want deep love between two people, you have to face fear because love between people is going to bring us to some of the deepest fears in us, the fear of abandonment, the fear of being betrayed or being a betrayer, the, the fear of, of that there's the deep fear everywhere. People don't think there's enough love to go around. And if you take love away from me, I'll never find it again. And I'll hate you for taking love away from me. It's terrible at that level. So when fear becomes love's ally, it's, it's because you face into fear. You go directly toward fear. You're willing to feel fear. You're willing to journey with fear, with your breath, with, with the deepest aspects of your awareness. You are going to see that fear is love's ally. Because if, if we are to say that love is a greater God than fear, and I believe it is, I, I know it is, then the very first thing that love will ask us is to love what we do not love. And what is the most reviled feeling in all of life if it isn't fear? Isn't fear the most rejected sensation? Don't we compensate in every way possible to avoid fear, to protect ourselves from fear? Aren't we constantly running away from fear? And love is going to say, you know, you have to go fearward. You have to move toward fear. You have to open yourself to feel fear. You have to become less and less and less afraid of fear because fear is what will close your heart. Fear is what will cause you to bury yourself in belief systems and, and judgments that will poison your heart and have been poisoning human hearts forever. And so until you see that fear is, is love's ally, that love is going to say to you, you want to love deeply in this marriage? 
you have to go on, you have to face fear. You want to love deeply in life, you have to face fear. And facing fear isn't just the courage of a soldier or the courage of a warrior. Facing fear is what a lover does. Wow, I love that. <laughs> I have to use the same word. Uh, so in a way, if I understand, is there's no separation between life and death and love and fear. That journey in a way that the experience requires the experience of one requires the other right and you know we're we're in this COVID-19 pandemic now and death is all around us over 80,000 people have died in the United States and I'm close to a quarter of a million in the world and the number will keep going up and and so death is there but it's impossible for us to comprehend death with our minds you know, and, and it's only as death becomes really present to you when you get sick, when the doctor calls you up and says, oh, I, we just saw something very suspicious. We need to do more tests. What are you looking for? Well, we have to rule out cancer. And suddenly you're awash with fear or your child gets ill or your child doesn't come home when you expect them to. Um, and suddenly you're awash with fear and you realize that fear is going to be there constantly. And as death gets nearer, fear and love are going to get closer and closer and closer because just to simply fear death is pointless. Yeah, yes. So uh, my next warm-up question is about peace. What is your understanding and idea of peace? Well, it's not, it starts inside of each of us. Every single person, the, the nature of the brain and the nature of the way humans experience consciousness is that the right side of the brain is presencing. It is experiencing everything all at once. It looks out at nature and it sees no borders, no boundaries. It doesn't say 40 trees in this field and 300 trees there and this is they're worth this amount of money and it doesn't it doesn't name birds and this the left brain represents it names everything and with each word and each name comes a sentence and with each sentence comes a a, a thought and with each thought becomes a structure of belief and rationality and logic and on and on and on like that and and so you have to be able to recognize that this is how consciousness operates it divides consciousness in the left brain is always dividing and so when you start to think about how your husband didn't do this you're dividing yourself because it's not your husband it's the husband in your mind mm -hmm. or your wife is this way or that way it's your wife in your mind or that employer or that politician those they, they don't exist outside your own mind and what your mind is doing is dividing and once the mind is dividing it projects division and so it sees division it sees division in politics it sees division in the marriage it sees division in the couple it sees division in the community it sees division between religions it sees the division between nations so peace is when you say i am 100 percent responsible in myself for every form of reaction which comes from my dividing, my divided mind, I'm responsible. Nobody forces me to react. Nobody makes me angry. Nobody makes me a victim. I do that to myself with my thinking, and then I attack myself or others. So peace is when you recognize you're the source of the division that you see in the world, mm. and you decide... I don't want to let my mind be divided because that closes my heart and that kills love in me, in my body, 
it, it, it diminishes my health and it weakens my relationships and makes my relationships unhealthy based in fear and anger and hatred and vengeance and bitterness and resentment, which are all created by thoughts that start in a divided mind. And so pieces, you learn to slowly but surely stop dividing yourself. Wow, I love that, Richard. Yeah, there's a deep, deep wisdom in what you just said. Right. And I have a few more warm-up questions, about three or four. Uh, what, where, and who is God to you? <laughs> God is my creation. And in, co in accordance with how I create God, I am created by that creation. I am the creation of the God I choose to imagine and believe in. God is also an idea that makes every other idea relative. To believe in God is to therefore be able to question every other thought, concept, or belief. Because God is the one thing that can't be reduced to a thought, that can't be reduced to a belief or an idea. And when people ask me, do you believe in God? I say, well, whatever God is or isn't, I'm absolutely certain that whether I believe in God, God still loves me. So I create that God, a God that can never stop loving me. And therefore, I feel a profound safety in my relationship to God, a profound beauty in my relationship to God. Who told me to create God that way? Mm, right. Jesus the, the church, the Christian faith, the Catholic church, and then the Christian faiths that grew up around the teachings of Paul, really, interpreting or bringing Jesus's short ministry to life, said of the two commandments, to love God and to love thy neighbor, the, to love thy neighbor is the, the most important. So whatever you want to make God, if you want to make God love, you're really in good, you're in good hands. And if you want to make God consciousness and consciousness that's, you know, infinite love and compassion, as as the Buddhists would say, or particularly the Dalai Lama, he says his religion is infinite love and compassion. If your religion is infinite love and compassion, then that religion creates you. It creates your choices. It creates your sense of self. It creates your behavior and your actions. If you have an angry God that you need to obey, and you're God-fearing, then you will create anger and fear in the world. Be very careful of the God you choose and the God you invent and the God you believe in. And absolutely, you're not a free person until you choose your God, because the God that's told to you by others is a derivative God. And it, this form of God that you speak of is um, within us, would be within us or outside of us. But why not both? We say God created everything. We, we use a metaphor of seven days in, in the Judeo-Christian Islamic lineage. Buddhists, Taoists, Confucianists, they don't believe in God as an absolute cause. They believe that there's a dance of relationship of forces that are mysterious and profound. But the scientific metaphor for creation is the Big Bang, is a point where everything that exists in our known universe is compressed to no time and no space and then erupts forward. It's an interesting metaphor because it's easily understood rationally by the way we look at the universe through, you know, through physics and, and, and 
that aspect of science, cosmology. Uh, but I don't think it's in a better metaphor than the metaphor of God creating the heavens and the earth in seven days. I don't think it's a better metaphor than everything arises out of relationship to everything else, as the Buddhists and the Taoists would say. I just think these are all metaphors. And choose your metaphor carefully, because it's going to determine how you live and who you are. Yeah, God is everywhere, inside and outside. And uh, let me see. Now I'm getting into uh, questions related to your work. And the first one is about presence. How would you describe presence? Oh, you know it when you're in it. Because the only part of you that can't be present is thinking. Thinking is always about the past and the future. And it's always about some judgment of yourself, some story or belief about yourself or some story or belief about everyone and anything, everyone and everything else. So presence is when you're not thinking. Presence is when you're completely engaged and you're in your body and it is experienced as a soft living current. Now, there are superficial levels of presence as in the state of flow, which are also magnificent. This is what surfers live for and skiers live for. And any athlete that has pursued a sport deeply enough has entered in and out of the state of flow. And when they're in flow, they're not thinking at all. They are being and acting and doing within the framework of their training and practice. So the deepest presence is the presence that is not conditioned on an activity like skiing or sports or focusing on, let's say, writing poetry or painting, all of which are beautiful ways to experience presence. Presence is something that you find again and again and again and again and again in your relationships. Presence is the, as a friend of mine likes to say, is the difference that makes the difference. And it's, um, it's challenging to uh, describe it with words. Well, it is because it's too simple in some ways and it's much more subtle than that. Little babies are always present. They just don't know they are. Children live primarily in a state of present moment awareness, as do most animals. Right, right. But they don't know it. By the time you know, then you're no longer present. And so <laughs> right. the, whole arc, the whole arc of evolution and consciousness is to go from a child's undifferentiated state of presence mm -hmm. to the people who live in their egos and separate self-consciousness, which is always divided and always ruled by the mind, the thinking mind, and therefore rarely present except in things like sports or dancing or sex and, and so forth. And then finally, to really land in a state of presence by the very through a long and deep practice, uh, which which has hallmark moments of awakening in it, uh, but where you know you begin to become at one with a consciousness. You're no longer fighting with your mind. It, your mind pumps thoughts like your heart pumps blood, and you know now you're in a deeper state of presence, and it radiates from you. It's like a current. You feel it in you. It's never far away. Even when you're focused on something, the minute I stop and start to breathe, it just start, I stop. And like just then I stop for about a second and there's this current that's flowing through me. You're inside of it with me. I'm inside of you in that sense. It never leaves me. If I get angry, it leaves me. If I get competitive, it leaves me. 
As soon as I become aware of it, I'm angry, the presence is back. As soon as I become aware I'm competitive, the presence is back. As soon as I become aware I'm identified with my thoughts and no longer truly listening deeply, then the presence comes back. But if I'm identified with my thoughts, I can never be present. So in a way, presence is um, it's this unlearning process. Very well put. Thank you. Um, what is to be intimate, Richard? Well, I think that's dependent on your age and stage of life. To be intimate is to be close. To be close means that you can listen. To be intimate means that you don't have thought structures and dividing thought structures between you and another, between you and yourself. To be intimate with your own body, with your own sensations, your own feeling is a practice of sitting down every day and observing yourself with, without an agenda, without a goal, tasting, tasting the experience of yourself as if you've never tasted it before, as if it's the first time, and then being able to look at a husband or a wife and say to yourself, a part of me tells me I know this person, but here I am with them, and who are they really if I'm here as if for the first time? And then suddenly that's intimate. Suddenly... It's, you've never had a kiss like that before. And a part of your mind will say, oh, yes, we've, had, we've made love beautifully. But it doesn't matter because each time you make love, it's a new piece of music. It's a new symphony. It's a new dance. And so intimacy is also sensual and erotic and erotic. And erotic is a, coin, a, a term a, a friend of mine, Jack Zimmerman, and his wife Jacqueline McCann was termed because they knew that erotic was too sexualized and too object, objectifying of people. Right. But eros, the principle of love, eros. And then eros lived between people in a touch, in your voice, in how you listen, in a, in a kiss, in an embrace, in your dance. When you're out in the garden and you're digging in the soil, when you're chopping vegetables in the kitchen, I mean, what you're doing, you're really doing, there's intimacy. Intimacy with the food, intimacy with the smells, intimacy with the light and the, the changes of light as the cloud blocks the sun. I mean, intimacy is that life is inside you and, and you're inside of life and the inner and the outer are less and less separate and more and more unified. It sounds really great. It makes me think about giving, giving ourselves to life, giving ourselves to the moment, to the experiences fully. Yeah. What are the reasons to be alive? That sounds great. Yeah, I have been thinking a lot more, thinking or maybe experiencing, I'm not sure, this idea of giving, just giving myself and the more I do that, the more I relax, the more the entire everything falls into the ground of whatever we call life. Yeah, it's that giving. When, when you give, when you give, what are you giving in service to? Mm, love. <laughs> oh, for sure, love. <laughs> exactly. Because there are plenty of people that give to get. They don't give for love's sake. They give, they give to be safe. They give to be wanted. They give to get something. It's transactional. Mm, that's very different. It feels very different. Yeah. It is. It is. It's yeah. all fear-based. It doesn't give joy. No. Right. Right. It's not the same. It, it can be felt in the body, right, when we are not giving, but exchanging, right, or taking. 
Um, so talk to me about the inspiration and intention of writing about conscious relationships. Oh, well, you know, I always knew somehow people get interested in me. They can find my story in my book, The Black Butterfly and, and other books of mine. But I always knew that it didn't, I, that enlightenment never really appealed to me. In fact, I, I awakened or the classic experience of mystical realization or something without even understanding that that was possible. Even though I'd heard of seekers and so-called experiences of enlightenment and people that were supposedly enlightened. And I think every, you know, people are more or less enlightened a great deal of us are very, very little enlightened, but there are some of us that, that are more or more than more or less enlightened in some way. And and um, <laughs> oh, I'm kind of got distracted from what you asked me. Um, go ahead. Yeah, and you got me thinking about another question: What is enlightenment to you? Uh, but the original question was the inspiration and intention of writing about conscious relationships. Well, it's how, it's a way that I learn. Um, conscious relationship to me is everything. I mean, if I'm going, consciousness is a, is relationship. There's no, there's no. If you talk about consciousness as a oneness before all relationship, it's meaningless. So when people talk about non-duality, in my experience, everything is non-dual. The, the computer in front of me, and the microphone in front of me, and the anger or or the joy, they're all they're they're only dual. If I put my, if they create opposition inside myself to myself, so it's um, that's enough for the moment. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you could answer that question about enlightenment, what is enlightenment? I don't know. Yeah, me too. I actually I don't, don't know. know what I, don't, it is. I don't think anyone is. I don't think anyone is ever finished. Mm. I don't. I don't think the Buddha was ultimately enlightened because we know the Buddha didn't want to allow women in the Sangha. He literally said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he literally said that if women enter the Sangha, a teaching that might last a thousand years will maybe last 70 because women are like mildew on a blanket. They will rot the teaching. And so he was forced to let women come into the Sangha. And when a mature woman dedicated to the practice that he was teaching, stepped into a room, nobody stood up. But if a 12-year-old novice or a 10-year-old recently adopted into the religion and comes into the room, every woman has to stand. And you know what? You know, that the Buddha was 800 BC, and he was so far ahead of the Hebrews and the Greeks of his time. But if you want to say the Buddha was enlightened, he certainly wasn't enlightened in terms of male chauvinism, in terms of male entitlement, in terms of disparagement of, of woman and the feminine and as carried by a woman. And so not to not to punish the Buddha, you know, he brought a teaching about sensation and presence in the body and the notion of ignorance um, so importantly into the world. And nobody's finished. Not Jesus, not anyone has ever finished because the capacity for intimacy and depth of relationship depends on everyone. And so you, you go as deep as you can in your life and you spread what you can of your understanding and uplifts others. And then the next generation of young souls enters the world and they need to be taught. Every single human being recapitulates the same developmental process 
of going from, you know, every one of us. And we have to go through the relationship with fear. We have to learn to stop being identified with our thinking. We have to be able to step out of rationality into heart mind that is starting from something living and real and then understand a, a rational or logical relationship between things. Economics, for example, is a highly destructive um, discipline because frequently it starts from pure abstractions that have nothing to do with life or love or goodness or well-being in the deepest sense. So, you know, enlightenment is a process that's a, you know, a, a, of which we human beings on planet Earth are all participating in. Wow. So it makes me think about this idea of a destination, um, getting somewhere, being somewhere. If enlightenment was true, it is true. It sounds to me like a destination, getting somewhere, being somewhere. Do you believe that there is a destination? <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's a pole star. I think you can have a profound dedication. I think a lot enlightenment is marketed as a destination. And I think for that reason, I think the people who exp express enlightenment as, as a destination create the very obstacle to the experience of enlightenment. Um, and so, no, enlightenment is not a destination. Enlightenment is inevitable mm. and unreachable. Mm, wow. And so let's go back uh, to relationships. You mentioned uh, that there is a connection between relationships and evolution. So what kind of evolution that would be? Well, suppose, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious about this. Suppose you have a couple, a hypothetical couple, that have learned to become good friends, but they've reached the comfort zone. They don't, they don't want to push any deeper, yet they're good people. They're good parents, maybe they're good grandparents, they're good friends to each other. So what do they model as the possibility of love? Well, they model a lot that's good, loyalty, friendship, dedication. But suppose you have few people who have, are risking every barrier inside of themselves. They haven't made a vow to love one another, but to love love with each other. And where does love stop? It stops when the heart closes. And why does the heart close? Because the mind creates judgment or because fear is present, or because my self-interest competes with your self-interest. Suppose they keep working through all of those things. Suppose they do. Well, just like a person gets deeper and deeper into their body in the present moment, radiates an energy, radiates a presence, so do a couple. Every relationship lived with profound depth becomes a model for the possibility of relationship at that depth. And in that sense... It's evolutionary. It's not about having a relationship to produce a family. It's not about having a relationship to have just companionship. It's about relationship as the very place in which you discover what love is, what gets in the way of love, and you evolve in your capacity to be loving and to be loved. And so then you radiate. So my wife and I, we work together because when we came together, we had a realization and understanding that we were being drawn together not because we fell in love with each other, not because we were attracted to each other, not because we were lonely, but literally an energy started to move that wasn't sexual attraction, but some sense that what we had to do through our relationship 
was to share an energy that's only possible through relationship. And of course, we love love with each other, which means we love intimacy with each other in every form of that word. We have lots of bumps along the way, lots of hurdles, like every couple does, like all relationships have. But but we've made a commitment to love love with each other, which means that she will say in her 100% rule, she's 100% responsible for any form of reaction to anything I do, say, or don't do. I assume the same 100% responsibility. Then she has her notion of 200% responsibility, Kathy. She'll say, whoever has the most balance in the moment, the most presence of mind, the, is, is the least triggered into reaction, has 200% responsibility for what then unfolds in that relationship. So think about a couple that lives that, and people that live that, and what are they modeling, and what are they transmitting? Mm. What are they transmitting about the past? I think every young couple that's listening to me now, I mean couples in their 20s, 30s, 20s, they're already deep in transaction, and they're probably building a family, same probably in 30s. But around 40s and 50s, that's still young, I'm 73, those couples are beginning to say, wait a minute, why are we here? Not why am I here? Mm. And the man's spiritual practice is meaningless if it isn't immediately and deeply engaging him more profoundly with his partner and vice versa. You know, So you don't have, your spiritual practice is your relationship. Your spiritual path is your relationship. The question you ask all the time is not what do I want, what do I need? What does the relationship want? Because this relationship is consecrated to heal us in every place where we close our hearts to love. Through every form of conditioning that started in infancy or childhood or any form of trauma we may have experienced of any kind at any stage in our life, that's never an excuse. Never an excuse. I absolutely love this, um, well, we can call it concept. To me, this is a knowing that's coming from experience. So it's uh, wisdom itself speaking. Uh, yeah, when you say we love love, it's about we and the lessons that we are here to learn. It's wonderful. Thank you. Do you want to hear something interesting? Yes. <laughs> In the 1990s, I was with friends of mine, French friends. He's this now deceased, but it was a very wonderful spiritual teacher in France. And we became dear friends, his his couple, my couple, and we were shopping. We were just wandering through a tiny little medieval town in the south of France. I came across, I came across a, a simple, beautifully, a, a simple quote that was done on artisan paper. And, and the quote was simple. It was in French. And I didn't for all my years of traveling and teaching in France, I've never learned French. So I asked my friends to translate it. And there's a quote by St. Bernard, Bernard, and it said, Who loves, loves love. And loving love forms a circle so complete there is no end to love. Mm. So I bought it. And it became, starting in 1993, 94, whenever it was, it became like a mantra that just was working its way in my subconscious mind until it became my path, not to love someone, but to love love with someone. And to meet Kathy later in my life, five, six years ago, who was also through her own path there, finding her way to loving love. Wow. She said, she, she languaged it slightly differently. 
But here's what's so interesting. I recently was reading before I I went, I was teaching in Israel for the first time in my life back in February. First time I'd ever gone to Israel, to the holy, quote, holy land. And I discovered in my research and readings that St. Bernard was an anti-Semite. He persecuted not only Jews, but people that were poor and 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 I just it was such a shock to me because I had so ennobled him in my mind that this was a great mystic of profound wisdom back at the you know end of the end of the tenth century nine seventy nine eighty nine ninety after you know A.D. and there he was a very fragmented man he could teach about love but only love in the Christian sense and for a particular order and group of Christians. Mm. And it just it just shocked me a little bit because I realized, ah, he didn't even understand what he was teaching, but it didn't matter because it was, for me, absolutely essential. Just like when I was a doctor all those, you know, back in 1976 and I was in the ER and I was about to sedate a patient and keep him for observation because of extreme pain and aggressiveness. And suddenly a voice in my head said, you have nothing to share with this man except love. And I didn't, I had the nurse not give him the injection. And I just told him I was going to put my hand just above his head, above his belly, and maybe touch him as softly as I would dare wanting to be touched if I was in terrible pain and fear. And suddenly this heat just flowed through my body, this intense heat and energy. The man fell asleep almost immediately. And 30 minutes later, when he woke up, he was completely fine and we could discharge him. And so 1976, a voice says, you have nothing to share with this man except love. By 1977, I took a leave of absence from medicine and never went back. 1993, I find something that says, who loves, loves, love. And loving love forms a circle so complete there is no end to love. Love has been choosing me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I have been an awful, <laughs> self-involved, narcissistic man just learning slowly that awakening means nothing, enlightenment, awakening means nothing except as you live it in daily life. Yeah, there's no time. We know there's no time. It's a concept. Pretty much everything is an illusion, a concept, but love, right? And that is profound. There's no, yeah, there's no end to love. So in a way, what do you, um, your work is about relationships. So that's it. There's no destination, just relationships, right? Yeah, I, I work with people privately, all different aspects of life. Um, everyone who's seeking somewhere to go to deepen in love, to deepen in consciousness, to be more effective in their work, in their business, to be better parents, to really celebrate what, what it's like to be here, I'm, I'm a mentor to and a coach to. And I've been leading retreats for 40, 40, almost 45 years and working with individuals as well as couples. So I have just a very broad range of experience, including medicine and and my continued interest in study of science, as well as psychology and spirituality. and um, But but I learn, I, everything I teach is because of what I've learned in myself. Right, yeah. That's another thing that I call wisdom, yeah. Oh, true leadership, 
because you can't really teach what you have not experienced, what you don't know. Well, you can, but you don't, you, you end up casting a very big shadow. That's true. You could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By their fruit, they shall be known. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Let's, let me put that word, true teach. Yeah, you cannot truly teach, right? Thank you. Very clear. Yes, yeah. Um, would you like to add anything before I ask you my final questions, Richard? No, I've really appreciated you. You put a lot of thought into asking these questions. And, you know, it, I don't know how well I've grounded them in, in, in the day-to-day -day things that we all struggle with. But, you know, it, until you know what the direction you want to navigate by, then it becomes meaningless to talk about anything else. But once people hear that they want to navigate by love, then there's so much to learn and life becomes an infinite adventure. So now ask your last question. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Infinite um, adventure. I love that too. So my final questions, um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself as of today? Well, I've had to face death and fear of death a number of times, but no, I think the hardest lesson was how unconscious at every stage of life I've been, how, you know, and, and that each, it's certainly at each stage of my own Growth, I have to keep forgiving the ignorance and callousness and self-involvement that led me to do things that were never terrible, but were, were hard for certain people that I was close to in my two previous marriages. And I think, you know, just that constant lesson that, you know, if you think you don't have a shadow, be sure you do, you do, you know, and, and that, you know, and the hardest thing maybe of all has been learning to be you know, really compassionate and gentle with myself. And that is actually my next question. Um, do you believe in unconditional self-love? Oh, God. I mean, when you put it in those terms, I, I would like to believe it. <laughs> you know, but I, but I think, you know, I said, they would, you know, in some of the stresses in our relationship without going into details, every marriage has them. But you know, um, Kathy has her children the three daughters and two of them weren't ready to, you know, at their particular age, they're in their 20 and in their late 20s. And um, and so, you know, kind of integrating me into her family was not an easy thing. And I found myself resenting not being appreciated. I found myself with lots of places in my own mind. And I would sit down and I would look at parts of my mind still that I would call the spoiler or Mr. Ugly, you know. <laughs> who, you know, just didn't, you know, was, was, was easily, could easily fall into what I talked about, the part of my mind that made judgments and divided me and again and again and again. I'd have to work on that, not just for their sake, but for my sake, because as soon as that voice or those kinds of voices are operational in me and in anyone, your heart closes and you don't feel good and you suffer. And so, it, the only way I can understand infinite self-love is an infinite willingness to look at every part of myself that doesn't love and to do my best to be compassionate and gentle, but determined not to let that part rule my behavior and rule my mind. Right. And that uh, makes me think about um, the conscious relationship, the, the most fundamental one is with ourselves, right? It starts here. Exactly. But you know you can't divide it. it. It's the relationship to the whatever you navigate by love or God as love. The relationship to the other and relationship to self—they're indivisible. Mm. Oh wow! 
yeah, yes, uh, yes, that's true. That's true. And you're right. It always starts with us because I don't have power over anybody else, only me. And God, God is what I choose to believe God is. And therefore, and unless I go deeper into myself and the wonderment causes God to become more marvelous and wondrous in my understanding. And yet my pole star is love and loving love is the behavior and loving love with another and everyone else and with myself. They're all inseparable because you think you love another until you don't. And then you see that the very way in which you've stopped loving the other is is a form of division in, in yourself and you're suffering. You're suffering your own self-dividing thinking. And if you love yourself, then you have to stop that thinking or at least understand it, at least not give it more energy. You know, I've, I've spent so much time in front of groups and using a microphone that I use the metaphor, you don't give it the microphone. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, I love. I really love that. Um, yeah, it's inseparable, right? Um, yes, 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 and yes, a thousand times. Um, if you <laughs> so true. If you knew you would die soon, you. I mean, let me rephrase that. If you knew you would leave the body soon, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? No, I'd meditate more. I um, had a cancer scare. Six weeks ago, uh, I do have a tumor in my upper chest that will have to be coming out of, uh, but it's apparently not malignant at this point, but it is crushing a nerve and some blood vessels to my right arm and hand. So I had a chance to revisit the fear of cancer and the fear of death. Um, so in answer to your question, I um, I added an extra hour of meditation before I went to bed, in addition to my morning practice of anywhere from an hour to two hours. And I did that so that I could keep my heart open and so that I could carry my my weight through if I were in a dying process. What would I do differently? Nothing. I, I would just, I already have a practice of trying to practice dying. Um, I start with the image of an insect struggling inside a window, trying to get out to the light. And I feel my body as the final obstacle to being able to surrender to the limitless consciousness. And so I, but but as long as I have a body, I have a me. And as long as I have a me, I have desires, wants, and all of those will be lost in death. So the practice of letting them go ahead of time to remember that it's all consciousness that I've experienced that one consciousness that is love a number of times and that it gave me deep tastes of something that will never leave me. And so what would I do differently? Be a little more gentle on myself, perhaps practice a little more, maybe move a little more slowly than I do. I move pretty slowly. (laughs) And um, But by moving pretty slowly, I mean, I don't ever. I try not to ever get enough into a hurry that I that I forget the living presence that it that it that it recedes out of my awareness. Oh, yeah, that made me think again about this idea of giving ourselves to life, to love. Death might be the ultimate uh, test, right? Losing the physical body. Yeah. Thank God we die. Thank God we die. <laughs> Yeah, um, yes. Um, so my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure? Health is precious. Loving another is the greatest, greatest gift. And to be loved by another 
to love and be loved. That's the reason we're here, the deepest reason we're here. I know that for sure. I know that health is a precious gift. I know that we human beings are amazing. And I just wish, I just wish we weren't so much the victims of fear and self-interest. And we are growing. That's for sure. I, I, I know we're growing. I just, I just don't know whether we're going to grow fast enough to avert the climate disaster that's already happening to us. And whether, whether it'll bring us together or just further divide us between have and have not, have nots. And, you know, I guess I'll stay with the two things I do know. That to love and be loved is to have consciousness, you know, to be able to evolve through consciousness and the gift of health. I don't know. I could probably come up with other abstractions, but. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Thank you so much for your presence, your wisdom. Where can we find more information about you, your work, books, products, services, and future projects? I have my own domain name, so it's www.richardmoss.com. There you can find out about my calendar, which has radically changed from retreats and workshops to webinars and teaching on the, through webinars. I have a YouTube channel that's under my name, too, and lots of teaching videos that are there. And you can find out how to contact me for private coaching and as well as my wife, uh, who does wonderful work with people, all consciousness-based, uh, body-based work that we both do. So that's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Richard, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, and there's seven books, but <laughs> people find that. If you Google my name, if you go to www.richardmoss.com, you'll find out about the books. Yes, all right, absolutely. thank you, Valeria. Really uh, you were very thoughtful and thoughtful questions. And I like this warm-up questions, which weren't warm-up at all. And <laughs> <laughs> I have to change the name then. Oh, no, it was good. <laughs> I got to think for a better name. <laughs> no, I, I like them. The whole process, we're always warming up to the truth. Yes, right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to, to know what I know with you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye for now, Richard. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Richard Moss, please visit his website, richardmoss.com. about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.